0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw Hello everyone and welcome to History of the Second World War, Episode 98, Hungary, Part 2, Expansion. During the 1930s, Hungarian foreign policy would be driven by one idea, that if they worked closely with Germany, they would be able to benefit from the continued growth of German strength and its continued alteration of the European status quo. This would first manifest in close economic ties with both Italy and Germany, with the agreements focused on acquiring the ability to either buy or build modern military hardware, and other manufactured goods. Hungary would be able to use its agricultural output as payment for these imports, but during all of these efforts, care had to be taken with Hungary still technically being under the constraints of the Treaty of Trianon, which had been signed after the First World War. This treaty forbid any expansion of the Hungarian military beyond the small size required for internal security, but after 1927... This restraint, or constraints, were not well enforced, and while it would still be in effect for almost another decade, the fact that Hungary was rearming was an open secret. In 1938, it would finally be able to remove the constraints after negotiations with several of its neighboring nations. During that same year, the overall political situation in Eastern and Central Europe began to rapidly evolve due to the German antagonism of, and then annexation, of parts of Czechoslovakia after the Munich Agreement. This would greatly weaken the Little Entente, which was a collection of Eastern European nations that had tried to work together after 1919 in the hopes that their combined power would be capable of mounting a successful resistance against their larger neighbors. During this episode, we will look at how Hungary reacted to many of these events during 1938, the growing tensions of 1939, and then the German invasion of Poland in September 1939. At the end of the last episode, we discussed how Hungarian foreign policy began to take a decidedly pro-German stance in the early years of the 1930s. This was accelerated once Prime Minister Gimbesh came to power in 1932. Gimbesh was a more radical politician than previous Hungarian leaders, although President Horthy and other politicians believed that they could put him on a more moderate path, an endeavor they were not hugely successful at. Gimbes had strong support in the military, where many officers were either direct supporters or at least approved of sort of the fascist governments or foreign fascist governments, like in Germany after 1933. After 1936 and the death of Gimbes, the Hungarian government abandoned some of the more radical approaches that Gimbes had advocated for, but from a foreign policy perspective, they generally stayed on the same path. For example, in 1937, the Hungarian military would have talks with the German army leadership around future joint military ventures, with much of the focus being placed on Czechoslovakia. There were other areas that were more important to the Hungarian military, uh, but they could really only get support from Germany for expansion into Czechoslovakia, since that was also an area of German focus. To participate in such military ventures, the Hungarian military needed a large boost, And therefore, in early 1938, a five-year program began with a goal of modernizing the entire military. The program would never be fully completed, partially due to the fact that the European War started much sooner than the Hungarian government or military expected, but it was one of the ways that the military used its influence and its position to push for decisions that would lead Hungary closer to war. This push would become far stronger once Germany invaded Poland with the military using Germany's string of early successes as justification for its policy that Hungary should abandon neutrality and enter the conflict as soon as possible. However, before that conflict began, there one important aspect of Hungarian foreign relations would be with the Little Entente. The Little Entente was made up of Czechoslovakia, Yugoslavia, and Romania, which surrounded Hungary on pretty much all sides. And there was a good amount of animosity between Hungary and these other nations, There were serious territorial disputes as well as concerns about future aggression from both sides. During the late 1930s, there would be several periods of discussions and negotiations as the representatives from the three other nations attempted to build up a solid base for better relations with Hungary. This was particularly true after Gambesha's death, which saw a seemingly less German-focused government come to power. What the Little Entente wanted was for Hungary to join in a non-aggression pact to try and prevent any war in the area for the foreseeable future. Hungary wanted specific concessions from the other nations before it would enter into any such agreement. And most important of these sort of requirements was the right for Hungary to openly enter a period of rearmament. Again, it had already been rearming, but, but it wanted to do so openly there would also be Hungarian demands for certain concessions that had to be made to the Hungarian minorities in each of the other nations. After some delay and some negotiations, the two sides would eventually assign what would become known as the Bled Agreement, which is a very complicated set of agreements. The key problem was that Hungary made its pledge for non-aggression dependent on the other nations meeting its demands on the treatment of minorities, but only Romania and Yugoslavia would meet those demands. Czechoslovakia would not be able to meet the demands placed upon it, which were stronger than the ones presented to the other nations. They they were essentially designed not to be able to be met. This led to the interesting situation in which Hungary had only really given non-aggression guarantees to Yugoslavia and Romania. Uh, But Hungary was not going to attack those nations in the immediate future anyway because they would not have been supported in those endeavors by Germany. The only nation that they did not sign the non-aggression agreement with was Czechoslovakia. And wouldn't you know it, that was also the only nation that Germany wanted Hungary's help in attacking. Funny how that works. Overall, these efforts by the four nations were doomed to failure, due to the political situation that was developing around them. I really like this quote from Broken Wings, the Hungarian Air Force, 1918-1945, to by Stephen L. Renner. Quote. All four states were, in retrospect, hopelessly naive in believing that treaties among them would make any difference at all. One of the major reasons that these negotiations and these agreements would end up not meaning very much was because of Germany. And the first target of German aggression would not be Czechoslovakia, but instead Austria. The Hungarian leaders knew that the Anschluss might occur. And in fact, their greatest surprise was simply the timing, as they did not believe it would happen so quickly. Admiral Horthy, the Hungarian president, would give a radio address shortly after it occurred to give the official response from the government. And in that speech, he would say, quote, For anybody with an open mind and seeing eyes who judges the situation must know that the union of Austria and Germany means only one thing for our country, that an old friend of ours who has been dragged by the peace treaties into an impossible situation has united with another old friend and faithful comrade. This is the whole thing. Nothing else happened from our point of view." Shortly after the Anschluss occurred, in April 1938, a new and much larger rearmament appropriations bill would be passed through the Hungarian government. This included a massive amount of spending on military hardware and infrastructure spread out over a five-year period, which would be paid for by a one-time tax on property and then large internal loans. To spend this money, the Hungarian military leaders would dust off a plan that had originally been written in 1932, and was designed to give the army the ability to rapidly staff up to 250,000 men after the mobilization of reserves would occur at the start of a war. To do this, there would be three waves of spending, all covered by that new spending appropriations bill that had now been passed. The first wave would be focused on creating and equipping mobile brigades, which would be at the core of the infantry divisions, as well as the creation of some artillery and aviation units. The second wave would be focused on boosting the mechanization of the units and expanding their air squadrons. And the third wave would be spent on filling out the rest of the infantry divisions. The Hungarian Air Force was ready for this period of expansion, as they had already, in early 1938, organized its first aviation brigade made up of two bomber regiments and one fighter regiment that when it came to expanding their squadrons, they ran into a problem. It was difficult to buy their preferred aircraft, most of which came from Germany. The Luftwaffe was also in a period of massive expansion, and so the Hungarians would find it difficult to get the German manufacturers to actually come through with their orders. This would result in contracts either being unfilled, fulfilled at a massive delay, or just cancelled. One specific example of this happening would be when the Hungarians attempted to have the HE-112 manufactured by Heinkel and then exported to Hungary. The HE-112 had lost the German fighter competition to the Bf-109, but was able to secure orders from Hungary, at least partially due to the fact that it had at one point been the fastest aircraft in the world. This order would be made in the summer of 1938, but the first aircraft would not be delivered until early 1939, before the contract was cancelled by the German Aviation Ministry. In the end, it came down to the fact that Hungarian orders were less important than the production demands of the Luftwaffe. Even though Hungary was the largest importer of German aircraft, at least in the last half of the 1930s, it would still only be a small drop in the bucket of total German aviation spending, so Hungary just didn't rank high enough in priority. The cancellation of this contract was, of course, disappointing to the Hungarian Air Force leaders, but by the time that the first aircraft was delivered in early 1939, there were already some concerns among Hungarian leaders that the HE-112 was falling behind other foreign designs, especially those of Czechoslovakia and France. Unfortunately, the delay in the cancellation of the HE-112 contract meant that the Hungarian pilots would be forced to use the Italian CR-32, which could at least be purchased and imported, but was thought to be even less capable. Getting aircraft was one of the problems faced by the Hungarian Air Force. The other was trying to train up pilots. Piloting aircraft during the 1930s was a very tricky business, and the training for new pilots had to be well-considered and executed. When the Hungarian Army High Command commissioned an investigative panel of the overall training infrastructure of the Hungarian Air Force, they found that it was anything but well-considered and executed. They found it to be disorganized, using poor equipment, not given enough resources, and generally just of poor quality. This was then directly linked to the fact that during the last months of 1937 and the first half of 1938, there were 64 aircraft incidents uh, that you know cost 64 planes and also killed a lot of pilots. The Air Force was generally criticized for simply trying to expand too quickly, and not giving its organization and training infrastructure time to adapt to increasing demands. One of the solutions that was found for the problem of training was to send pilots to Italy. In June 1938, 200 Hungarian pilots would be sent to Italy for training at the cost of 18 million lira. The first class would begin training in October 1938, and then spend the next eight months going through the exact same training that Italian pilots received. The program would be considered a major success, with the added benefit that it came at very little cost to the Hungarian government, because the money spent on the program was just money that had been loaned from Italy in the first place. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see, so... No, that's a good thing. Uh, Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49, perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary, cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. While the deliveries of military hardware from Germany were at times disappointing, the political relationship between the two nations did nothing but grow stronger as the years progressed. This would come to a head in August 1938, when Hungary's president, Admiral Horthy, and several other political representatives would attend the naval exercises in Kiel, Germany. Hungary had only recently signed the blood agreements with the Little Entente, and Hitler and the Germans were less than thrilled at this development. To try and bring Hungary back into German plans, Hitler would go through the planned German invasion of Czechoslovakia, in detail, with Admiral Horthy, and then offer the Hungarians a participatory role in exchange for the right to keep any territory they captured. The Germans expected this sort of announcement and these details to be met with excitement, but the response from Horthy was far less than that. There were many who supported taking more territory from Czechoslovakia, and that was not the problem. The problem was the belief that the Hungarian military simply was not ready for such an endeavor. The hesitancy from Hungarian leaders was a problem for Germany, as they hoped to use a border clash between the two nations as the reason for their invasion of Czechoslovakia. But with the Hungarian military unwilling to escalate to that level of action, or to be the initiator of a war, German plans had to change. The Hungarian foreign ministry would put increased diplomatic pressure on Czechoslovakia, even making louder and more adamant demands that the Magyar areas of Czechoslovakia be returned to Hungary, and that Slovakia and Ruthenia be given greater autonomy. But that was the limit of what Hungary was willing to do. Hungary was then not part of the negotiations at Munich that led to the Munich Agreement, but it was impacted by them. As part of that agreement, there were to be negotiations between Czechoslovakia and other nations to settle outstanding border disputes. The Hungarian foreign ministry seized on this and immediately began to make demands. Plebiscites in Slovakia and Ruthenia, the release of Hungarian political prisoners, the right for all Hungarian soldiers to leave the Czechoslovak army. The situation on the border between the two countries would quickly escalate, with both Hungary and Czechoslovakia mobilizing their militaries. Hungary would call up 300,000 additional soldiers, while negotiations continued to try and establish a basis for further negotiations. From October 19th to 28th, 1938, war seemed like a real possibility as the two nations could not come to an agreement before on the 29th, they officially invited Germany and Italy to resolve the dispute. With Germany and Italy being in charge of the decision, it was never going to go in favor of Czechoslovakia, but both nations had agreed that they would accept the decisions made by the two powers before they even reached out to Germany and Italy. In the end, Hungary would gain almost 12,000 square kilometers and about a million citizens. As a good example of why these types of border disputes were so challenging and often led to confrontation, of these 1 million citizens, Hungary estimated that about 86% of them were Magyars, and therefore they fit nicely within Hungary. Meanwhile, the Czechoslovak government estimated that the percentage was actually around 57%, Such a variance in numbers caused both nations to view the disputed territories very differently, but the Hungarian numbers gave the German and Italian representatives the justification for shifting the border. One of the topics that was not covered in these German and Italian decisions, in what would be known as the First Vienna Award, when all this territory changed hands, was the area of eastern Czechoslovakia known as Ruthenia. This had caused some frustration from the Hungarian government, and there were even discussions about launching an invasion. They reached out to Italy, who decided that the area was not important to it, and to Germany, who warned them very specifically not to do it. And they also reached out to Poland in the hopes that it could be a Hungarian and Polish joint attack from the south and the north. In late 1938 and early 1939, Poland was looking to settle its own territorial disputes with Czechoslovakia and splitting Ruthenia with Hungary would have served both national interests quite well, but in this case, it would not happen, due to Poland not wanting to commit the forces required. While many of these events brought Hungary closer to Germany in the area of foreign relations, there was also beginning to be shifts within domestic Hungarian politics to mirror what had already happened in Germany, to bring the two nations even closer together. A perfect example of this was the second anti-Jewish law that was signed in March 1939. This law expanded on an earlier law and further reduced the ability of Jews to participate in certain professions within Hungary. This law was introduced by Foreign Minister Imredi, who was one of those who held the strongest pro-German sentiments. Also in March 1939, events in Ruthenia would develop very quickly. On March 12th, just a few days before the Germans would invade Czechoslovakia, the Hungarian minister in Berlin was informed that the German operation would be happening soon and that Hungary would have 24 hours to move into and take Ruthenia before it became a German possession. The initial plan for this invasion to be launched on March 18th, uh, but planning had to be accelerated after March 14th and the Declaration of Slovakian Independence. This declaration meant that on March 15th, the Hungarian invasion would begin, the same day that the Germans also moved on Prague. The invasion would be launched with the troops that were available and in the area in March 1939, although there would be a wider mobilization as well, including that of the Royal Hungarian Air Force, which had been made an independent military arm at the beginning of 1939. The Hungarian military was in no way prepared for any kind of large military operation, and they were less than a year into their originally planned five-year military expansion program. That program had been accelerated, But there were limits to what could be done, given Hungarian resources and and their dependence on importing most complex military equipment. Fortunately, they would not be really tested during their invasion of Czechoslovakia. The invasion would be launched with six brigades of troops, three infantry, one motorized, one cavalry, and one bicycle. They would also be supported by several aviation groups, including two bomber groups flying JU-86s, and one group flying CR-32 fighters as well as several reconnaissance squadrons. The readiness of any of these units for action would not really be tested, because after the invasion began, little resistance was encountered. Some air units were used to attack Czechoslovak troop formations, but much like the German invasion from the west, most of the time spent in the invasion was simply moving troops forward until they reached the Polish border, which they would reach just a few days later, on March 17th. The casualties for the operation were just 220. After marching north to reach Poland, Hungarian forces were reoriented to begin marching west and into Slovakia. The Hungarians did recognize that the new Slovakian state existed and that it should be independent, but it also had some thoughts on where that country's eastern border should be with Hungary, and since it was not a settled matter, the goal was to try and capture as much territory as possible before the German government made them stop, Then this meant they had to advance to the west. In the air, Slovakian air units would attempt to attack the Hungarian army, but they would lose several planes to anti-aircraft fire with more damage. This would repeat the following day on March 24th with continued Hungarian advances and some Slovak resistance. Also on the 24th, the Hungarian air force would gain first-hand experience into something that many air forces would over the next two years, when they tried to launch a bombing raid on a Slovak airfield near Iglo. The original plan was for two squadrons of JU-86 bombers to launch the raid in the afternoon of March 24th. The two squadrons would take off from different airfields before meeting up to proceed to the target. And this was a good plan, but also, everything went wrong. It was late in the day and the planes were not equipped or trained for night operations, and they were also trying to carry bomb loads that were too large, which caused issues on the airfields that had experienced recent heavy rainfall. The second bomber group would not even participate, as they were slow getting into their aircraft and getting them off the ground, and then when they stopped to refuel at a different airfield along the way, they were too late to participate at all and so did not leave that second airfield. The 10 bombers that did manage to get to the target were able to drop their bombs about two hours after the planned time, and they were able to damage 12 Slovak aircraft. With at least some bombers reaching the target, the raid was technically a success. But post-raid evaluations were far less kind, pointing out that the raid against Iglo showcased a lengthy list of deficiencies around planning and preparation. There were far more favorable evaluations of some of the aircraft that were used, especially the fighters, as well as the fighter units as a whole. Against the aircraft that they faced, like the Avia B-534 biplane, the Italian CR-32 fighter and its Hungarian pilots had performed very well and in fact Hungary would later take control of 36 additional CR-32 fighters that had been in the Austrian Air Force at the time of the Anschluss. Overall, the invasion was a good learning experience for the Hungarian military in a situation in which there was little resistance and little risk of failure. During the spring and summer of 1939, as tensions continued to reach new heights around Europe and war seemed to constantly become more likely, Hungary would tie itself closer to Germany. It would join the Anti-Comintern Pact in February, Who would exit the League of Nations in April. The Hungarian government was generally in line with everything Germany was doing, except for one thing, the possible invasion of Poland. Hungary would refuse to participate or be the launching pad for any invasion of Poland, which the German leaders were certainly not big fans of. Hungary and Poland were on very good relations, and the two nations would continue to have close relations even after the Molotov-Riventrop Pact was announced, which included a German-Soviet non-aggression pact, which was clearly targeted at Poland. The two smaller nations were on such good terms that one of the driving factors behind the Hungarian government wanting to take control of Ruthenia was to allow the two nations to have a shared border. Hitler would not push Hungary very harshly on the Polish matter at least partially due to the Soviet Union being willing to cooperate with the upcoming operation against the Poles. After the invasion began, many Polish military units and civilians would escape into Hungary, with Hungary keeping the border open throughout the entire German invasion campaign and then long after, which allowed hundreds of thousands of soldiers, pilots, and refugees to make their way out of Poland, and first into Hungary, and then to other nations. With many of the soldiers who went to Britain and France after the fall of Poland going through Hungary. With war being declared, the Hungarian government would redouble their rearmament efforts in late 1939, with much of the focus being on the air force and air defense, with the top priorities being the expansion of air strength, acquiring more tanks, of course, and boosting anti-aircraft defenses. Throughout 1940, the primary focus of Hungarian military preparations were aimed at Romania, with the hope being that Transylvania would be retaken and incorporated into Hungary. Much like the early disagreements with Czechoslovakia, this disagreement with Romania would lead to German arbitration, with strict guidance from Berlin that a military campaign by Hungary against Romania should not be launched. And then in August 1940, 44,000 square kilometers and 2.5 million people would be awarded to Hungary from Romania. And that's where we'll end Hungary's story for now although we will certainly revisit the country and its actions in the run-up to Operation Barbarossa as it found its autonomy slowly reduced by the needs of the German war effort. Thank you for listening, and I hope you will join me next episode, episode 99, for the start of a series of episodes on the clashes between the Soviet Union and Japan in Eastern Asia during 1938 and 1939.